0: Welcome to How to Launch an Industry, brought to you by Marku and Aurora, bridging the gaps between business, science, and consumers in cannabis and psychedelics. I am Dr. Jehan Marku, your lead moderator for today, and I am joined as usual by my favorite chemist and business partner, Dr. Nigam Aurora. Hello, everyone. Hello, Nigam. Welcome back. Also joining us again is Dr. Jackie Von Salm, co-founder and chief scientific officer of Solera. Hello, Jackie. Hello. Well, listener, we have another great show for you today. First up, we're going to play a game. Testing your knowledge about cannabis sustainability, its environmental impact, and potential solutions. Uh, For our second segment, we'll discuss an article published in Forbes on reciprocity and sustainability and other cool issues facing psychedelics. Our third section, featuring a peer-reviewed article, will discuss the serotonin theory of depression, often referred to as the chemical imbalance theory. And some researchers think that theory is imbalanced and in need of treatment to fix it. Okay, we'll be right back in 30 seconds with today's game. And we're back. Welcome to today's game on Cannabis ESG. So, we're going to have three rounds of quick questions. Our first round is going to be a bunch of questions about how many products are destroyed in production capacity. It's going to be true-false style. Second round will be focused a bit on the problem of overproduction in the cannabis space, and will be an over-under. I'll provide different scenarios of different industries, and you, the listener and panels, will guess if the metric CO2 output is over-under that estimated for indoor cannabis cultivation. In third round, we'll explore solutions. I will share either quotes or synopses of potential solutions, and you have to guess if they are real or bogus. Um, And then for the bonus round, I'll share a quote, and it'll be a little bit of who said it about cultivating hemp. All right, and away we go. All right, so opening up the first round, this first round is worth one point, second round with two points, and that means the third round is worth three points. So each get one question. Uh, Nigam, as a co-founder of the show and uh, Marco and Aurora, you'll get to go first. Um, aren't you lucky? I feel it. <laughs> okay. So in our first question, um, cannabis producers in Canada sold 80% of what they produce between legalization in 2018 and the end of 2020.
1: True or false? Wow. Um, you know, I want this to be true. And I want it to even be like 80 is too low, but uh I'm too familiar with the harsh realities of growing humongous industrial scale <laughs> warehouse amounts of cannabis in the tundra of Northern Canada. And that sounded harsh when I say it, but it is kind of a harsh topic. So I'm going to say Jay Han, I'm pretty sure this is false. And I'm saying that because I've seen reports recently of millions and millions of grams of cannabis being just destroyed in Canada because they just couldn't get it to market and the regulations or the whatever is as such that destruction was the solution to some people. So I'm rambling. I'm upset about this. And I think the answer is false. All right. You are indeed correct.
0: (laughs) It is false. Uh, Cannabis producers in Canada sold less than 20% of what they produced between 2018 and the end of 2020. All right, listener. Now for question number two, we're going to have a very special guest joining us, uh, the wizard behind the curtain, our trusty audio engineer who's been with our show since the beginning. Joe Leonardo has just stepped in to play the game with us. Welcome, Joe.
2: Thank you. Thank you. First time caller, long time listener. (laughs)
0: <laughs> excellent, excellent. And be sure to edit this to make it sound like you won the game.
2: I'm going to completely change my tracks to the uh, correct answers. <laughs>
0: okay. So here's your question true or false in the legal Canadian market, the amount of cannabis topicals units that were destroyed between 2021 between 2020 and 2021 increased by over 1500 percent. So uh, to put it in you know layman's term the amount of topicals, that were destroyed um, basically in the last year increased by over 1,500%. True or false? Mm.
2: Okay. First, I'm going to say I'm not a professional on any of this, so I'm a great control subject. I guess just a consumer. (laughs) Um,
0: (laughs) Well, we, we love to bring people who have no expertise on certain subjects to discuss what they think about them, so you'll fit right in.
2: Well, you found the perfect candidate. (laughs) Uh, If I was to guess, I'm going to say this is true, and the reason why I'm guessing true is because with legalization and regulations and stuff, it's harder to pass regulations and stuff, so all of the uh, experimentation Mm -hmm. uh, they're not able to do, and when you're trying to sell something, it has to fit in certain molds, so I'm going to say they had to destroy a lot more than they previously did. That's my guess.
0: Going with true. Yay! And this is indeed true, according to a report put out by MJ Biz Daily that looked at the data and numbers available by Health Canada. Good job.
3: That was a great <laughs> assessment. <laughs> Fifteen, okay.
0: I think it was actually 15, 1580, 1,580% increase or something like that over the last year in the number of topical units destroyed, just going bad, not sold. It
1: may also have been a result of, you know, legalization starting in Canada was a big deal because it was like nationwide, but they actually had very limited products to start. Like at some point it wasn't like in like California where topicals, edibles, you know, uh vape pens, inhalers, everything was legal on day 1. It wasn't like that on the federal level in Canada. So this stat might be because more products were able to hit the shelf in 2020, maybe. Anyways, good job, Joe. (laughs) Note for
2: later, Joe, insert applause for yourself. Yeah, Yeah, nice.
0: (laughs) Yes, Uh, and like standing ovation. All right, Jackie, you're up. Here is your question, true or false. Since 2018, almost 900 million grams of unpackaged dried cannabis has been destroyed by Canadian licensed producers because of overproduction and quality issues. The weight is approximate to 650 Toyota Prius cars. So since 2018, almost 900 million grams of unpackaged dried cannabis has been destroyed by Canadian licensed producers because of overproduction and quality issues. A weight approximately equal to 650 Toyota Prius cars.
3: That's a big number. Nine hundred million grams is a—it's an obscene amount of dried cannabis. Um, my my sentiment is usually in line with nigums with a lot of these things. That so much more of this is destroyed than I'd ever like to probably admit. I saw it even when I was in the industry years ago, and. I I don't want it to be that big of a number though, so this is purely an emotional response. <laughs> I think I'm just going to say false because I just don't really want that to be true. Um, so that's going to be my my guess right now.
0: Well, sometimes the truth hurts. This <laughs> <laughs> yeah. so this is absolutely <laughs> true. Sorry, Jackie. Good guess though. I wouldn't oh, want it to be true that a, that. You know, yeah. you picture a pile of cannabis, picture a pile of 650 Toyota Prius cars. If that's how uh, much cannabis um, was destroyed, not used for, for a number of issues, including just overproduction, just having no one to sell it to. All right. But, um, but I agree. I wish it wasn't true either. <laughs> so now we're going to move to round two and we just gotta so this so we see some of the issue here with overproduction now we're going to talk about kind of the problem with that in terms of greenhouse gas emissions but don't worry the last segment we're going to go over some solutions to produce and use cannabis in an environmentally friendly way so Nigam you're up next and this next round round two, Ding ding is over or under. So send a true false. I'll just be asking you to fill in the blank. Is it over or under? So coming straight down the pipe to you. Uh, no pun intended about cannabis there. Uh, according to a Colorado-based study, greenhouse gas emissions from coal mining in the state of Colorado were estimated to be over. Or under the greenhouse gas emissions of indoor cannabis cultivation in the state. So Hmm. uh, another way to put it is in the state of Colorado, what produces more greenhouse gas emissions, the coal mining
1: activity or the indoor cannabis cultivation? So I don't know much about coal mining, uh, but I know a lot about cannabis. And I've heard these reports that in the state of Colorado, I think it's like, cannabis is like top three energy consumers because also in Colorado in the summertime, it's like scorching hot in the wintertime. It's ice cold. I mean, it also, all of these places, Canada, Colorado, Massachusetts, Florida, none of these places are Northern California. None of these places are optimal for just growing cannabis with, uh, you know, low environmental impact, uh, so far as energy input and output. So, I'm going to go ahead and say I, I believe that. I believe that cannabis creates more emissions than coal mining.
0: So you would say that um greenhouse gas emissions from coal mining are under that of
1: indoor cannabis, correct? i I would say I will bet my two points on it. You get
0: two points that is indeed correct in a study comparing uh, different industries in Colorado. Coal mining was estimated to produce um, uh, greenhouse gases that were under the level of indoor cannabis. All right. Good job there, buddy. All right, Joe. Let's see if you can keep the beginner's luck going with our next question.
2: Damn. We're going to... Wait, we can
0: bet our points? That's on the last round. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> I right, Maybe we right. should start betting points now um, so no one has them by the end of this. Uh, but...
2: I'm learning that gambling is my vice oh, there you go because I got very as excited. as soon
0: as you have enough points we'll let you bet them all but um, <laughs> so your question Joe is according to the same Colorado study greenhouse gas emissions from waste management in the state of Colorado are estimated to be over or under greenhouse gas of indoor cannabis cultivation so um, you know you could think of this in different ways but you know we have the entirety of indoor, cannabis cultivation in the state of Colorado and the entirety of their waste management uh, for all things um, is waste management over under the greenhouse gas emissions of indoor cannabis. Hmm. I will give you a hint if you would like, because I know it's a bit tricky.
2: I'm not taking the hint (laughs) (laughs) and I'm going to go on my hunch. So when I think, so I, I live out in the East coast here, I'm in New York city so I don't really know how they deal with waste management out in Colorado. Um, I know it's a very progressive state, but I don't know how it is in regards to just um, like infrastructure and stuff like that. Um, but my guess is they're 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 pretty good out there. But at the same time, waste management is a huge contributor to greenhouse gas. My guess is waste management is. More of a pollutant than the cannabis industry, so i'm going to say, what's the over so i 'm going to say that the cannabis industry is produces less greenhouse gases than waste management, so what is that over, over?
0: Uh, so that would be let's see you so you would say that uh, greenhouse gas emissions from waste management were estimated to be over greenhouse gas emissions yes
2: I'm going to say over
0: than cannabis all right well. Get
1: over it. You better get over it because you just won two points. All right. Oh, thank God. Something is something is worse than cannabis. Wow. Yeah.
0: The entirety of waste. <laughs> thank you, Joe.
1: <laughs> yeah. So just yeah. just remember
0: that the next time you buy cannabis, you're not as bad as an entire state's like waste system. So speaking of um, smaller amounts of cannabis, Jackie, I don't know what's happening with my random question selection, but you're getting, I think, the tougher questions. So, throughout, uh, so the most thorough report quantifying greenhouse gas emissions from indoor cannabis is by this author with the last name Mill. It's it's, by now it's a fairly popular study, but it's the study that stated um, that growing one kilogram of cannabis indoors releases forty-six hundred kilograms of carbon dioxide, which is over or under, more or less, than the CO2 produced from driving a passenger vehicle for six months or 5,700 miles. So is producing one kilogram of cannabis indoors, uh, does that release um, uh, more carbon dioxide or less carbon dioxide than a passenger car vehicle being driven for six months?
3: So... This time I'm going to go against cannabis like I should have probably done last time <laughs> to get my point. And or the industry, I should say not cannabis the plant obviously. That it's not the plant's fault. It's not its fault it's um, being grown indoors. It's,
0: it's those are regu- it's, right. it's required yeah. by regulation. <laughs>
3: <laughs> and after being part of the Florida indoor growing situations and the amount of energy and everything else that that entails is I'm going to say that the amount cannabis produces is over the amount produced from driving a passenger vehicle.
0: All right. Well, I, <laughs> I hope for anyone driving this will understand that that is indeed yeah. true. Uh, one kilogram of cannabis is All over. Right. <laughs> if you have drove the car for a year, they would actually be about even. One kilogram of cannabis uh, produced indoors and driving a car for a year would actually be about equivalent in their CO2 emission. All right. Everyone is doing well. It's a close heat. So we're going to go right into our third round really quick here. We're going to talk about solutions. We've been talking about problems, but what good are problems without solutions? So, Nigam, you are up first. So the first uh, and this is either real or bogus, true or false. So, uh, New York Senator uh, Michelle Henchy is sponsoring the legalization, uh, sponsoring um, the legislation, which would require cannabis shops to apply a one-dollar deposit for any marijuana product sold in single-use plastic containers, and also reimburse consumers for that fee. If they return the container. So, is this a real or bogus solution? Is this a true, is this a made up solution that uh, Senator Michelle Hinchy is sponsoring legislation which would require cannabis shops to apply a dollar deposit for any marijuana product sold in single use plastic containers, even if that is required by regulation to put the product in a single use plastic container and
1: also reimburse consumers for that fee if they return the container? Well, wow, I have so much to say on this topic <laughs> that we don't have time for. Like, oh my god, I could talk about it forever. So, um, I'm going to just try to answer the question. Uh, sure. Yeah, I believe that's true. Um, but I think there are bigger problems at play. So, props on politician like considering environmentalism in a way, but a dollar per eighth container is not going to solve this problem there. We need to go uh, deeper uh, into why are we even packaging it in this way? And this goes way beyond cannabis. So like the, the societal addiction to single use, everything is an issue. And in cannabis, it also is an issue and it also is bad. But anyways, I I think this is probably true. So this is indeed <laughs>
0: A real solution that's being proposed is simply, uh, you know, hey, we've required all these cannabis operators to package their products in a certain way. Let's charge them a dollar to do that. Um, So, yes, this is a real solution to uh, being proposed right now in New York. All right, Joe, um, you're up next. And we got a fun one for you. So this is about the U.S. Department of Energy. Do you think this is real or do you think this is bogus that the U.S. Department of Energy, the DOE, is sponsoring a project to develop hemp fiber insulation that's designed to be better for the environment and public health than conventional insulation preparations are? Um, So is the DOE just handing out money for people to develop hemp fiber insulation?
2: Um, This sounds real. Um, And that's kind of what I've been going on this whole time. And it's been working well for me. So I'm going to go with that this is true. Fun fact. You know, it was originally Steve
0: Bannon who wanted to build the wall separating, um, you know, uh, the United States from Mexico out of hemp bricks to keep out uh, marijuana from coming into the country. Uh, look it up, it's a real thing. So yeah, so this comes partially from that that the DOE has given out lots of money for people to develop hemp crete, 3D printing, as well as hemp fiber insulation. So good job, Joe. Wow, you are you're you're killing it in your first first time here. I'd I'd use it in my house.
3: Yeah. <laughs>
1: Yes. and
0: then the the, the the one I think there's a train station in LA built during the World's Fair that's that's made of hempcrete as well. Mm.
1: Um, yeah, we talked about yeah. that.
0: All right, Jackie. The last question comes to you. Um, so you know there are conservation groups out there, and they like to give out advice. So is this real or is this bogus? The Sierra Club gave out tips on using marijuana in an environmentally friendly way. These included buying quote organic ish end quote products buying outdoor cannabis, and they also say that using glass pipes is inherently earth-friendlier than rolling papers. Is this real or completely made up? Did the Sierra Club give out tips on using marijuana in an environmentally friendly way that included things like buying, quote, organic-ish products, and that glass pipes are inherently earth-friendlier than rolling papers?
3: This seems so specific that I don't know how it would have been like something made up (laughs) only mostly because of the organic ish part of that. Um, but, oh man, I, um, I'm going to go with yes, that they did give out these tips. Um, I I don't really know why, but I just something about it seems like something that would be done, whether or not it was the Sierra Club or not. I'm not sure, but uh, I'm going to go with yes.
0: All right. So the Sierra Club, a prominent conservation group, would they give out tips about how to use marijuana in a friendly way Uh, or cannabis or hemp? (laughs) Well, they did indeed. So Jackie, that is three points for you. And that brings us to a neck-and-neck end point here. So we have Nigam with six points, Joe with six, and Jackie with five. And real quickly, we're going to go to our final round. You all can bet your points, and I'll give you the benefit of seeing the question first. And then um, I will give you the choices afterwards. Uh, So here here is the quote. The quote is, growing hemp as nature designed it is vital to our urgent need to reduce greenhouse gases and ensure the survival of the planet. Now I'm going to give you three guesses uh, or choices, I guess, to, to pick from who said it. Um, and i I guess I'll give those to you first. So your choices are Mitch McConnell, Mr. Hemp farm bill himself. You know, he was a big proponent of making sure that people could sell uh, derived cannabinoids, uh, completely unregulated, and anyone could grow hemp. Um, big proponent of that farm bill. Also, Jack Herrera, cannabis activist, um, author, or Patrick Kennedy. You know, I think he's a co-founder of the Sensible Approaches to Marijuana and a number of other credible organizations and things he has said about cannabis. Um, so uh, I'll give you a second. If you want to bet points, uh, you, you don't have to. But it might give you an edge. Um, so we'll go, you know, let's keep the order, I guess. Nigam, how many points uh, are you willing to bet from your big six?
1: Gosh, I uh, I don't know. I'm going to bet. I'm going to bet. I'm going to abstain. I'm going to bet zero. You're
0: going to bet zero. Um, I'm, all right. Yeah. I'm,
1: yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm abstaining from this political one. All right.
0: Joe. Joe, would you before you give your answer, do you want to bet some points? <laughs> you have six.
2: Six whole points. I'm miming pushing all my chips onto the table. Okay, okay, all right. I'm going all in. Joe's
0: going big. All right, Jackie.
3: Oh man. Well, if Joe wins, I don't have a chance either way. <laughs> if he goes all in. Uh, but I think if. Uh, if neither of them get it, then, you know, maybe if I put in two, I'll at least be at seven. Mm. Right. So, you know, I could take the lead and, the, and I like lucky number seven. So I'm going to bet two.
0: Two points on the board. All right. So take a moment to write it down or emblazon it into your head um, if you have a choice. So I'm not going to say right or wrong yet. I want you, you all are going to say it and then I'll make the big reveal. So again, the quote is, growing hemp as nature designed it is vital to our urgent need to reduce greenhouse gases and ensure the survival of our planet. Was it Senator Mitch McConnell, Mr. Hemp Farm Bill himself, Jack Herrera, uh cannabis historian, author, activist, or Patrick Kennedy? Um, I believe he's the co-founder or sponsor or something for the Sensible Approaches to Marijuana, Project SAM. So, all right,
2: Joe, it comes to you. Uh, can I ask a question? Yes. Patrick Kennedy, he's a congressman or a senator? What's his deal? Uh,
0: Patrick Kennedy, uh, well, you know, he comes from a fancy family. Um, So uh,
2: Patrick Kennedy's
0: background, I mostly know him um, as, uh, you know, he likes to do uh, a lot of philanthropic things around mental health and addiction. Um, Do you know his political party? Let's see, I think he was in Rhode Island. Um, So that's... Pretty Democratic, yeah yeah Democrat.
2: I don't want to Google anything because I don't uh, want anything so to. So yeah, up. so he
0: was a Democratic member of the United States House of Representatives um, from Merlo- the islands' the first congressional district, according to the internet. Um, he's become a big advocate for a stronger mental health care system in the United States as well.
2: Uh, now, Jack Herrera. Do we, is he from the West Coast or is he from the East that's Coast? That's a good question. Um, I know he is from the United States. Um, so uh, here's, here's my, my mindset behind this. So if uh, Patrick Kennedy's in Rhode Island, if anything's going to be grown naturally, it's not going to happen in Rhode Island for cannabis. It's going to happen out West. Obviously, I'm just crossing off Mitch McConnell because that doesn't sound like something Mitch McConnell would say. But I feel like an East Coaster... Who has who grew up in harsh winters and is talking about an industry wouldn't say, hey, let's only grow it naturally. So my guess is Jack. All right, you're going with Jack.
0: Jack was also born in Buffalo, New York, but we're not gonna let that dissuade you. <laughs> All
2: right, well, there we go. Never mind. But I'm going with Jack. You're going with Jack.
3: I think I just I love how strategic you are about your decision-making in this game. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Joe's that's...
1: going hard on this game. Yeah.
3: Um, so I, I'm i going to also go with Jack Herrera. Um, my reasoning being specifically the statement of as nature designed it. Mm. So mm. that's um, my, my is Jack.
0: All right. So the quote, Growing hemp as nature designed it is vital to our urgent need to reduce greenhouse gases and ensure the survival of our planet. This is nowhere close to anything that Senator Mitch McConnell has ever said. Neither is anything ever like this come out of the mouth of Patrick Kennedy, to my knowledge.
1: Oh, I'm about to lose a game.
0: So that means that Jack Carrere, author of The Emperor Wears No Clothes, as well as has a few cannabis varieties named after him, Uh, The late author Jack Kerr did indeed say this along with some cool things, which means Joe coming straight out of left field wins (laughs) with a commanding 12 points.
2: I played this game like Moneyball. (laughs)
3: Yeah, nice.
2: Well done, Jackie.
0: Second place, not bad. You were you were trailing there, and Nigam, much like uh, the filibuster backfiring, abstaining um, did not roll out in your favor. You <laughs> you were shooting, you were going for a hundred percent here.
1: Somewhere in the you know six hundred and fifty Priuses of weed and <laughs> uh, the. And the, you know, a year's worth of car emissions on a, on a kilogram. And I just, I think I was just too disappointed to continue, you know? <laughs> so, um, the, yes. Anyways. All right. But, you know, uh, but I think the reason we wanted to play this game was because to draw attention to the environmental aspects and we're about to talk about, uh, reciprocity and psychedelics and it's, you know, I'm saying I'm disappointed, but I think that Others are also disappointed and we need to collectively as a society or as an industry, like do something different, you know, and cannabis is like an example. There's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of examples, you know, um, And so I'm happy to lose as long as I can say that into the mic, you know, that's a beautiful concession speech.
0: Thank you, Dr. Aurora.
1: (laughs) (laughs) And congratulations to Joe Leonardo. Yes.
0: Well done, Joe. Thank you. Thank you. As you can tell by the applause, the studio audience really just loves you. You'll have to come back to play a game with us again. All right. Well, we're going to close out segment one. We'll be right back with segment two, where we'll talk about reciprocity and psychedelics and other issues from a recent Forbes
3: article. Hi, I'm Adriana Kurtzer from Plant Medicine Law Group a psychedelics and cannabis law firm active in New York, California, and Oregon. If you'd like to learn more about what we do, please contact me at Adriana at plantmedicinelaw.com. That's A-D-R-I-A-N-A at plantmedicinelaw.com. I look forward to hearing from you.
0: And we're back. Now it's time to peruse the popular literature exploring business and politics with a dash of science. Welcome to the non-peer-reviewed portion of the show, and away we go. So, commodifying plants, animals, and fungi as a process that can be both troubling and disruptive. Uh, I've written about this in a Rolling Stone article about the myths of the psychedelic industry and how some myths are really bad for sustainability and the goals of the psychedelic industry, such as what we've seen with the Sonoran Desert Toad, the misrepresentation of this toad in marketing materials has pretty much made it endangered and threatened. Um, But there's a newly launched indigenous-led nonprofit organization that wants to help strengthen Indigenous communities' efforts to preserve their traditional medicines, including things like ayahuasca, toad, ioboga, peyote, mushrooms, um, their access to which is being increasingly threatened by climate change, commercialization, over-harvesting, and cultural appropriation. This nonprofit is seeking to raise money to support... Numerous indigenous-led projects and protect certain medicines. So, an organization like this brings to mind all the challenges facing cultures, society, vulnerable populations, and and you know, as psychedelics spread across the globe, um, you know, like food coloring dropped into a glass of of water, psychedelics are just sort of spreading, taking over. And sometimes the message and the quality of these products, I think, is getting a bit dilute. But to start the discussion. Um, We'll begin with this article published in Forbes. The article by Amanda Siebert is about a new fund to support indigenous-led psychedelics projects. You know, NIGM, uh, we conduct due diligence uh, projects and assess companies. We look at product pipelines in the space. I was kind of hoping you could put on your assessor hat and tell us what you learned about this indigenous medicine conservation fund and how it might help with business. Um, Are there any tricky politics, but I'd love just to get, you know, sort of a high-level view from you about what is this
1: Indigenous Medicine Conservation Fund? This is a, you know, fund. It's a a pool of money, and they're applying this money to different projects. Now, they have listed five um, core areas that are essentially around uh, different substances, right? So as you mentioned, they have one for iboga, they have one for peyote, they have, um, one for ayahuasca. So they have these different areas. Um, the thing that, uh, and, and then they're aligning with some other existing nonprofits like river sticks foundation, which actually, uh, river sticks is broader than, uh, just psychedelics. They do have a psychedelics initiative. They separately have an indigenous initiative, and they have totally separate, like societal initiatives that have nothing to do with psychedelics or indigenous populations. Um, so, so that's a little bit um, on the background. What I want to highlight and something that I believe is really important is that there's this whole uh, concept. So reciprocity. In itself is just like any field, any concept, it can be misunderstood, it can be manipulated. So, we see this with science, all of us sitting here as scientists, we see it with science all the time. People making a false claim, people, you know, bending uh, a real scientific claim to their own advantage when it doesn't really fit, right? So, I think a important part of this whole field of reciprocity with indigenous populations and in the psychedelics field is. Um, What's being called out in this article is that it should not be transactional. And then we have a supplemental article uh, that we'll post from uh, Etheridge Foundation, uh, which actually is a sponsor of the show. And um, they're talking about this thing, right relationship. And when you talk about right relationship, there's a lot of details. So there's, um, you know, uh... There's solidarity as a component. There's benefit sharing as a component. There's all these like smaller components that can that, that go into reciprocity or giving back as a whole, but they need to be considered. Like so for example, you can have solidarity with indigenous populations and say, you know, I understand and I feel what you're going through, and that's solidarity. Separately from solidarity, you can have benefit sharing, which is to say, you know, I'm just gonna throw out a wild example. If uh, you know, Compass Pathways was to say every time we sell a prescription for psilocybin when it's legal in three years from now, we'll give one percent to indigenous populations to do whatever they want with. Now, now that's like a wild example, but it's that's classic benefit sharing. We're getting a benefit, we're giving it back, right? So, but what you often see in what Several of these articles and people who are in the know about reciprocity will tell you is that often companies see it as a one-time thing. Oh, we'll make a one-time donation. We've done reciprocity. We checked it off. Somewhere in this article, in the Forbes article, it says literally made a donation, checked it off our list. <sighs> so, um, we, which is just not how it works. So, I'm not being as perfectly eloquent as maybe I could be, but I'm expressing kind of piecemeal here. The, all these different things that go into reciprocity and just like anything, there's complexities, there's depth. I mean, this is real people's lives and real people's cultures, and it's not something to be checked off a list. It's not something to be solved with money alone. It's a deep thing. It's a complex thing. And, uh, and we'll post, uh, all these resources in the show notes. Um, and I encourage everyone to read it and consider it for themselves and, uh, there's a lot of ways people can contribute, but but I don't want to dominate the mic. I can circle back on that we'll later. Just hang out
0: on that uh, toadstool for a minute. We'll be back. Um, <laughs> uh, or a hemp box, I guess. When we talk about mushrooms, is it a toadstool? And and when we talk about cannabis, it's standing on the hemp box, right? I like to I like to swing from the ayahuasca. Okay, vine, there you go.
2: <laughs> just
0: hang there for a moment, will you? From the banisteria uh, uh, copy. Um, so, uh, yes, I like what you said about re- you know reciprocity is not transactional. You give me this, I give you that. that's that's just a transaction. Um, you know, Jackie, I would love to get some of your thoughts about this. You know, one of the things I wonder about the IMC is what has changed to, if anything, to allow an organization such as this this fund to be supported? Um, what are their chances of success? and you know, um, are there? Besides just like local issues that it's addressing, how could these be good for you know business? How could these be good for you know communities? Sort of a like protect psychedelics lo- locally, watch them flourish globally, sort of question.
3: Yeah. So I I have a lot of things that pop up for me whenever I read these articles. Um, the first one being that I'm. White privileged female growing up in a first world country. So I really have no concept of exactly what a lot of the other indigenous and others around the world would be going through when they're looking at these things. Um, So I get asked this question a lot, even at conferences, when I give talks, that sort of thing about, well, how is it that companies can even be started and be working on anything that would even be close without giving back? And um, I usually always ask the person when they ask me that because. 99% of the time, the person asking me that is another white privileged person from a first world country. Um, Have you talked to these indigenous populations and have you confirmed that they actually want anything financial from someone? And it really, I asked that question because, and, and this article really talks about that is it's not always just about what even you mentioned, transactional. It's not always just about throwing money at it and expecting people to be okay It's the part of reciprocity is that there's a mutual benefit. And right now you're really just asking for something. And I don't really know that you're giving back mutually in the way that reciprocity is supposed to be done. And I think there was another line she specifically said, which was reciprocity requires consent. And that's why I bring up, have you actually spoken to some of these different populations to make sure they even give consent to one Do what you're doing, but two, to then even want anything in return that's purely financial, I should say. Um, So I I love that that was brought up. I love that she said it's not just a sticker to slap on your website that you've done this, and it's not just something that you then use to still just benefit yourself, which is totally not mutual. Um, I think that another big aspect of it for me specifically is I came from a natural products chemistry background. So most of my training of going out and finding things in nature and finding new drugs from them required you going into a lot of different places around the world and getting a lot of those permissions, working with the governments or the local peoples or whatever it might be. And there's a lot of people in that natural products world that do these things. Um, I highly recommend Cassandra Quave's novel, The Plant Hunter, because she really does what I think is how most people should treat this is she goes out to these populations, asking them for information on their natural botanical medicines, but she gives them her time. She's there with them. She's spending time with them. She's doing these things. And I think that a lot of times um, that's almost more honored in a lot of these cultures than you just throwing money at it. So- um, yeah, I have lots of things I could say, but I think that's probably my biggest thing at the end of the day is is if you're really willing to give them your time and your energy, I think that's going to go a lot farther than saying, here, we threw a few thousand dollars at it and then hit that checkbox and moved on.
0: Yeah, absolutely, Jackie. And I think uh, I agree that you know investment um, does not sort of, it's not necessarily the only thing to help culture and help traditions, you know, just because you give to the fund, there's also this issue that oh, I, I gave a, you know a few thousand dollars. I'm going to slap this logo all over my products and company because I'm involved with this, um, and 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 make it seem like you're involved or you represent. And I see this throughout, you know, especially in the hemp and cannabis industry. Organizations will attend a meeting, <laughs> like a conference, and be like, "We work with this scientific society." And it's like, no, no, you just attended a meeting and you didn't even present data. <laughs> yeah. um, and I think, and so I think there is an ethical thing here about marketing and conveying people's involvement. But I like, you know, not everyone feels that they have the time to go down and spend with those cultures, or maybe the the ability to. So there has to be, I think, multiple avenues of support, and there maybe there there are other options on how to give your time to these to these cultures or traditions where you're you're getting a resource, um, and, and and you know there's some interesting projects that I think they're working on, and and to go back to Nigam, I don't want to leave him hanging on the vine for too long, um, but you know they talked about trying to raise twenty million. And, and I guess, you know, Nigam, you, you, you know a bit about business investment and things like that. So I wanted to say like, well, what if they got 200 million? Do you think they would make an even bigger impact? Or do you think it'd still kind of be the same because we're dealing with a fairly localized issue that a lot of people, uh, as Jackie said, you know, uh, main because of who they are, where they live, um, their privilege, their position of privilege, they may not. Be able to fully comprehend the issue. So I guess that's that's my uh, that's my prompt for you is what would this look like if they raise ten times the amount of money they're looking at?
1: I think that's a super interesting question, and I want to go back to kind of what I was saying, what Jackie was saying, and I want to draw a few examples. Um, so I'm going to go back in time um, and, and share something. So uh, I. When, when I was an undergrad, I had the privilege of being part of the scholarship group called the Sam H. Jones Community Service Scholarship. And uh, for three years, I did a lot of different community service um, through through my university and through nonprofits in in, um, in the local area and working with, with different groups and populations and all this stuff. And we also um, had... You know, workshops and seminars and and class and and all this stuff too. So we basically uh, they call it service learning, where you're doing community service with your hands, and then you go into the classroom and you learn about the theory. And so you're like reading about community service in a book and then you're doing it with your hands. And the combination is really potent. So one of the big things that we learned that Jackie was already saying that the article's already saying is that you have to listen to the community it's super simple you cannot push money you cannot push like they're saying they in this Forbes article they transplanted 200 peyote buttons great and I don't know if somebody asked them to do that or not I don't know who made that call hopefully River Styx knows that and they believe in it but anyways back to my story and trying to be concise at a fundamental rudimentary level you always just need to ask the people or the group that you're attempting to help, what's going on with you? What do you need? What do you want? And they used the word, I thought it was interesting, they used the word consent. It was either Sutton King or the other woman who they mentioned used the word consent. And that's fairly straightforward. I, I think that's easy to understand. The big example I want to shout out about this uh, that I learned about when I was going through the service learning in undergrad is that... Um, There was this thing in the – I believe it was the 80s that there was some natural disasters in Haiti and there was a big push, I believe during the Reagan era, to, oh, my God, children in Haiti are impoverished and they don't have clothes. They don't have shirts. Let's do a big charitable drive from America to save the population of Haiti and make sure they have clothes. And you know, the Fed was behind this and they said – And they had this big drive, this big effort. So all of a sudden there are like literal shiploads of cotton t-shirts showing up in Haiti. Now it turns out Haiti didn't ask for this. And it also turns out prior to this, Haiti had a fairly vibrant um, textiles manufacturing industry. And sure, whatever hurricane or whatever happened, yeah, Their industry was down for a little bit. Yes, there were people who didn't have a shirt that day, but Haitians were not asking America to send them shiploads of free shirts. Now, what ended up happening is there was so much free clothing just got sent over. A lot of these textile manufacturers just went out of business because nobody's buying their textiles because, hey, I have literally a shipload of free clothes. And another shipload and another shipload. So Jayhan, I'm telling this story because back to your question, what if there was $200 million for indigenous reciprocity on one hand, awesome, great. On the other hand, what is the bandwidth and the capability to interact with people on the ground in, in, in these indigenous populations and ask them, what do you need? what do you desire what is your community lacking that you would not lack if your community had not been marginalized by mainstream industrialized society right. or whatever you know so um i i think uh to to try to wrap it up on on my comment and i do have one last thing to toss in at the end but to try to wrap it up on my response i should say i think whether it's i i don't think the amount of money is as consequential as the listening as the right relationship, as the consent. And as the, you know, there is one quote I want to read. Um, and it says, um, this is from Sutton King and she says, benefit sharing is an honor and not, not a concept that should elicit the question what will I get out of this? So it's a $1, dollar. It's a hundred dollars. It's $200 million. It's not about the money and it's not about Forbes and it's not about any of that. It's about the, this, this benefit sharing and this caring and this listening. And it's, it's about
3: it's community.
1: Community. That's what I say. It's about people, however different they are, just listening to each other and just seeking to understand on a human communal basis, who are you? What are you? What do you want? What do you need? Um, Last thing I want to shout out, uh, we'll post a link for this. We're going to post a bunch of links for this reciprocity topic, but um, there's this other thing that the Forbes article calls out. Etheridge foundation calls out. There's this thing called um, grow medicine and people can contribute directly to some of these causes. And I think, uh, we can hope there's some credibility based on these organizations, shouting them out. Um, I also want to just shout out, uh, cause it hasn't come up in the conversation, uh, to Shakruna. Shakruna is an awesome organization, uh, and they do a lot of work on the ground, uh, with the populations and, um, and, and they weren't featured in Forbes, but, uh, but they're great. And they also have, their own uh, indigenous reciprocity initiative that also embodies a lot of these um kind of key uh lessons and actually Joe Mays who's been on the show started that and leads it so um just just uh would be remiss to not shout out these other organizations
0: yep absolutely um i i like that tie in there to you know um these fundraisers cuz i i think i've seen some of those where people um, you know, if we're not careful, maybe there'll be an indigenous community that gets just like 10 million, you know, used pairs of tennis shoes just like show up because people are like, we decided that this is what you need. Um, so, I th- yeah, and, and I can imagine that with technology or other things, like when most of these communities, you know, I could imagine may want a certain level of conservation of their lands, uh, ecological protections um, and, and many things that will... Sustain their way of life or even improve it. So, I think you can only really find out what those nuances are uh, by talking with them because maybe you're like, oh, we'll just conserve some land for you here. It's in the desert. Actually, we live in the rainforest. You know, there could be like so many, um, you know, issues like that. So, we are winding down on time for segment two. Uh, You know, Jackie, uh, I'd like to, you know, if you had any. Closing thoughts you'd like to share, respond to Nigam's comments about, um, you know, Shakruna and these programs and how they're good. Perhaps you have a different opinion. <laughs>
3: no, I, <laughs> I do have just like a quick thing I can add. One of the things was, I think everything you were getting to Nigam was there is a quote from the, the Etheridge um, paper or article uh, was it's beyond bartering and towards sincere relationality. And I think, you know, that just really kind of sums up everything uh, that we've been saying. And um, one last little thing I'll throw in there based on sort of the money comment and what if they got more money and and that sort of thing is um, when I've read from others who have gone, especially down to the Amazon, the Peruvian rainforests and different areas was, as someone who worked in infectious and tropical diseases and neglected diseases and all of those things too in my during my phd it was there was a huge aspect of the amount of money being spent on finding new drugs for those things but then not really asking how they were actually going to get those drugs to those people nor if the people actually wanted to take those drugs and also a lot of the time some of those diseases could just be fixed with something as simple as Making sure they boil their water. And so I think that sometimes it's the simplest things that just seem very simple. Like even when Nigam was saying, the concept of listening seems very simple, but sometimes those can make such a big impact for some of the different populations around the world, even more than necessarily throwing money at it or creating the next, you know, pharmaceutical to cure um, parasitic diseases in, in the gut when really, if they just boiled the water and didn't drink it straight from the stream, <laughs> then they might have been a little bit more better off. But that takes a lot of time and energy, like I said before, and I, I think I think that, that impact will be greater though, if we really took that time and energy.
0: Excellent. You know, thank you, Jackie. I think that it's that's a, that's a great uh, place to end this segment. Um, it's been an, a, a great conversation. Um, it's always great to learn more about how people are protecting in, indigenous cultures, their ancient medicinal knowledge, and the environment in which these products are produced. Um, you know, I think there, there's a lot of promise here in this space, and you know, so let's avoid the traps and do things responsibly. But oh my science, I could talk about this for hours, but we only have about <laughs> an hour. So we're gonna take a 30 second break and come back with Rapid Fire Science. Hello, this is Jehan Marku. If you're looking for life sciences consulting in cannabis and psychedelics, look no further than Marku and Aurora. At our firm, we provide expert services from experimental design to technical project management and investor due diligence. If it has to do with the fundamentals and novel drug areas, we're your go to. Reach out to us at Marku Aurora.com to schedule a discovery call today. Remember, that the application of scientific approaches and properly gathered data can give you an edge towards reaching your goal. And we're back. Now it's time for the peer-reviewed portion of the show, and away we go. Antidepressants, in particular uh, SSRIs, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, um, may be treating a hypothetical condition, according to research. And what I mean by hypothetical condition is that it may be treating uh, something known as a, quote, chemical imbalance. Um, And uh, this comes from a carefully crafted a hypothesis uh, by the originators in the 1960s. It's actually, a very, very short article. It's not actually a research article per se with data. It's just you know sort of a, a little opinion piece, and basically it has been used to launch this hypothesis of chemical imbalance or uh, decrease in serotonin as being an underlying cause of depression. And this th- hypothesis um, has been criticized as being you know significantly flawed inadequate um, by U.S. psychiatrists since at least 2003. Yet, antidepressant prescriptions are as high as they've ever been, and drug companies are still doing research on these compounds. Most people struggling with depression don't see a psychiatrist. Nearly 80% of antidepressant prescriptions come from primary care doctors, And studies suggest that therapy can be just as effective as medication over the long term for treating depression, but therapy is expensive and often not covered by insurance. So for many people struggling with depression, things like SSRIs or antidepressant medication may be the only option. So attempting to put this issue at rest uh, by analyzing available clinical data, a recent article synthesized and evaluated the evidence on whether depression is associated with lower serotonin concentration or activity in a systematic umbrella review. Um, And and the article to start a discussion um, about this subject is entitled The Serotonin Theory of Depression, a Systematic Umbrella Review of the Evidence, published in Molecular Psychiatry in 2022. The lead author's uh, last name, I believe, is Moncrief, is how you say that, Uh, But the authors conclude that the main areas of serotonin research provide no consistent evidence of there being an association between serotonin and depression, bombshell, and no support for the the hypothesis that depression is caused by lower serotonin activity or concentration since there is some evidence that um, long-term antidepressant use reduces serotonin concentration. So, So how do drug treatments for depression work? Uh, You know, they're sort of these mystical mechanisms, and we all deserve a fuller picture about the risks associated with any treatment for depression. So, um, you know, how did the authors reach their conclusion? Um, Well, luckily, we have some smart people here to help us, um, help us with our little knowledge adventure. Now, keep your ears in this podcast at all times as Captain Dr. Aurora is going to take us to cruising altitude. And then walk about your mind once he is done talking. But Nigam, you're my numbers guy. I wanted. I was wondering if you could give us a little bit about the size and scope of the study. Like, what do they do? Why do we care? We, we we know the punchline, right? We know that they they found this very um, you know this thing um, you know about chemical imbalances. But there's this whole issue like chemical imbalances. Can it really be measured as a symbol of improvement? Because we all have to understand the human brain first. So um, you know, I guess I just wanted to kind of get a sense of what did they do here. What were some of the numbers? What did they kind of look at to to, to set up this conclusion?
1: Totally. Also, uh, I'll take that Captain Doctor title. That's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> it's only when you're piloting the conversation, <laughs> or an- or another yes. craft. Um. So I've I've piloted a few, but for now, um, yeah. So just to start off, this is what they call an umbrella analysis. So it's kind of cool or excuse me, an umbrella review. So it's kind of cool because they're going and looking at a lot of other reviews over the last 10, 20 years of these reviews that looked at different areas of serotonin, excuse me, in the serotonin system as it may affect depression. So they were looking at as Jahan mentioned, uh, they identified over 800 articles that may apply. Now they removed some duplicates, so they got down to 360. They um, then excluded 315 articles, uh, and the reason they excluded them was because they uh, weren't of of a high enough quality. Or they had confounding factors, like um, they were dealing with certain subtypes of depression rather than a broad study, uh, or that they were in animals or in cells rather than people. Um, And from there, uh, they narrowed it down further. And through all this narrowing, they got to a total of 17 studies that they said are... High enough quality. And remember, they're looking at other reviews. They're looking at other meta analyses. So, um, Jehan always calls me the number guy, numbers guy. So, what's great about this is that in the studies that they were looking at, um, individual studies have 10,000 participants or a thousand participants. So if it's like genetics, you get these larger amounts. Um but even in studies with like individuals, I mean, it's a it's over a thousand in a lot of these papers. So, as a numbers guy, I have nothing bad to say about about the numbers. And then the other thing that I want to shout out, just um, as Jahan's asking me to give this high level intro, is that I thought it was really great that they actually broke it down into several key areas. I think it was five and excuse my slow pace, this PDF. Uh, this is one of those PDFs where you got to flip it, uh, from left to right and right to left a lot as you're, uh, as you're reading it. But I want to rattle off these, uh, cause, cause there's a lot of charts. Um, I want to list some of these different areas. So they looked at several, they, they basically had five buckets that they think scientifically mechanistically, could reinforce or back up or confirm this uh, serotonin-based theory of depression, and so they were looking at uh, the levels of serotonin or its uh, metabolite or, or one of its key metabolites. They were looking at the receptor, the serotonin receptors themselves, primarily five HT one A um, in this case uh, to see if there are any abnormalities there. They were looking at serotonin transporter, which is, um, deals with, uh, Jay to speak more to this, but I believe, uh, deals in the synapse with this actual, it basically, you can have enough serotonin, but it's not being transported effectively. Um, and this is all detailed in the paper we reviewed on the last podcast. Um, and then finally, oh, excuse me, two other ones. They're looking at, um, gene stress interaction. Cause there's these theories that if you have like traumatic incident in your childhood, or if you're just chronically stressed out, it can affect, uh, your receptor action. I think that's the basis of it. They're looking at that. And finally, they're looking at, um, having low levels of, I believe it's tryptophan, which can impact downstream the levels of serotonin. So long intro here, I know, but I'm just trying to emphasize they took all these five different theories of why serotonin or lack thereof causes depression in a generic sense. And then they dug in for each one of these theories, all these different meta-analysis and, and reviews, and then they ranked all of these on priority of how much do we believe – was there bias? How rigorous was their science? And And so – as much as I'm never afraid to harp on a paper that I think had low end numbers or they had a bad study design, I think these these researchers did a pretty thorough job.
3: I think really well thought out and well-designed review articles are just highly underrated. Like they just this should be a thing all the time because of the amount of data being thrown out there all the time and the amount of information we all have constantly and just really having good reviewers and good people editing and looking through these things and really honing down on what sort of the take home is, is is really awesome.
0: Yeah, that's a that's a terrific point, Jack. You know, I, maybe when some people hear, "Oh, this is a review," they think like Siskel and Ebert give this study two thumbs up. You know, uh, when you <laughs> when you write a review, there are different styles. You know, probably the most common one And this is, I don't want to say like the throwaway reviews, but the most fun to write are the narrative reviews, which is you just write whatever you want that's part of your narrative. And I've been invited to do one or two of those about specialized topics because there's not a lot of information there. or There's not a lot of high quality information. But one of the things, yeah, that I look for for a good review is that like in this paper, it had a figure one which shows how they included and excluded studies. So if you wanted to like reproduce it, you could say like, okay, well I'll use their search terms. I'll see how many studies I find. Maybe you disagree over one or two studies, but there's an actual method uh, systematic or an umbrella review to help you, you know, reach reach your topic or reach reach your conclusion um, and and sort of understand it a little bit more. And you know, you know, Jackie, I'm, I'm kind of interested too since you're you know, active in the psychedelic space, a little bit about comparing what we know about psychedelics to, I mean, this is a little bit unfair, to the field of antidepressants, which contain a wide range of compounds in both field. but, you know, kind of defining a little bit what they do in our brains or bodies. And, um, you know, we, I think having a little bit of neuroscience to guide us about the organ humans have the least experience with using, uh, their brain, Uh, might be helpful here and kind of just know a little bit more um, about just some basics differences between psychedelics and and antidepressants. Cause I'm sure some people are like, well, if the antidepressant doesn't work, why don't you just try psilocybin or, (laughs) you know, but don't do therapy. That takes a long time and you got to like show up and be sober and like focus and do work. But anyway. (laughs) Right. (laughs)
3: Um, Yeah. I, I think for, um, A review like this really helps emphasize how little we know about not only the human brain, but neuropsychiatric disorders, depression, any of these really mental health and mood disorders, you know, more philosophically, I think it comes down to the fact that we still don't even really know what consciousness is or where it's located. But besides that, as a, from a serotonin and scientific perspective, I think it just really helps show that we might have these certain outcomes we see from these different drugs that have been in use now for decades, but we still don't really know why or what they're doing. And so I I think when it comes to psychedelics, that's a really important aspect of psychedelics as well, is that we still don't really understand what they're doing or how, but we do have a few decades of data and, and literature and information as well, it's just now. Can we really find reviews like this, or or take in everything we know to date about them and start to really try to understand the differences? So, actually, I was listening to one of your previous podcasts on serotonin, and I think it was was it Sarah?
0: Yeah, Doctor Sarah Jane Ward.
3: She had such a good explanation of the of SSRIs and MAOIs and sort of how they work and why you know serotonin syndrome is an issue and. Um, she did a really good overview. And so not to like repeat anything she necessarily said, but one aspect of a lot of these compounds is when you have certain things affecting serotonin at the same times as other things are affecting serotonin, it can really just throw your body out of whack, right? And so I think that's an important aspect too, is it wasn't as simple as in the 1960s saying, you just need serotonin. And it, it was we needed a lot more information. And it's um, it's interesting to also see, there's a lot of compounds that act on serotonin receptors. So, you know, you mentioned psychedelics. Um, they do target different serotonin receptors. Um, the triptan drug class, which is a migraine medication, targets specific serotonin receptors as well. Um, if you've ever had to take really strong anti-nausea medications like um, Zofran, which mm-hmm. is odin Odinsetrin? Odinestrin? I always forget how to pronounce the chemical term. Um, But that one also acts at um, 5-HT3, one of the serotonin receptors specifically helping for anti-nausea. So it's also important to remember that serotonin affects a lot of basic basic physiological functions and other aspects of your body. So I, I really just liked that this review helped remind everyone that there's still a lot of information and work to be done in figuring some of these things out. But so right now, it's it's almost like we just have to go with things that are really showing us less toxicity, showing us good safety and tolerability in people, and then going at it with as much information as we can. But we may not necessarily have all of the answers down to the polypharmacology and that chemical level. But the 21st century, I mean, our instrumentation now is way better than it was in the 60s. So if you were going to really start reperforming a lot of these analyses and really assessing you know different patients I would think it would give you a lot more information um, I did try to look through their references to find and maybe I need to dig deeper and go into the wormhole of like the reviews they were reviewing but I didn't see a lot of references that were prior to 2000 so I'm guessing they're in other reviews that they referenced because I'm just mm. I'm really interested in some of those initial studies done in like the 60s and 70s when, we didn't even really know what the different serotonin receptors were during that time. So it's actually hard to even take, this is like the data nerd in me a little bit where it's hard to even take some of that stuff into account sometimes when we didn't even really have good identification of some of these things. So yeah, I, I might need to do some digging in my my spare time. Uh, I, I too <laughs>
0: actually will start reading what references they cited in a paper before I finish an article. <laughs> um, it is it is a bit of a quality check, but they did, they did mention here that... Um, I think Nigam alluded to it too, is they had a selection criteria. So some of the stuff they either referenced or included is they tried to keep it more modern. And so if there were like five reviews, they would take the top most recent ones or the five most recent ones. But I think it's always okay. good to share the those original those original studies. And you know, if you haven't read the catecholamine hypothesis, which is the basis for the chemical imbalance paper, it is really short, surprisingly short embarrassingly short and you'd be like no way no freaking way did this dictate policy and drug development and like 80 percent of the people in the world believe this to be true no freaking way um like (laughs) it's it's like a it's like you know something you might turn into like an essay like in college you might be like here's an essay on serotonin and someone's like this is an essay this is a law about medicine that everyone will have to interpret Um, and if you have a problem with it, then you have an imbalance. Um, but no, there was, uh, you know, I think it's, it's, it's interesting how we get these funny little like viral concepts in our head and they stick around in, uh, scientific communities for decades. And, um, sometimes I wonder, you know, if the public is really ready for science, not to be an absolute truth. Like we're not like in ancient times where people are like, That is light. It is bright. This is darkness. It is dark. Science, black and white, you know, plus, minus, or is it one and zero? Like nothing is really like that in science. Things change. And and so I hope that by untangling this chemical imbalance theory, it leads to better products, better treatments, and it doesn't necessarily lead to a distrust by the overwhelming number of people who believe that this is a, a real thing backed up by great data, um, and that's, that's, you know, one of my concerns, I think, with this is, is how, how do we move forward? And, you know, what's interesting is when we talk about the different treatments for depression, like, um, you know, some people talk about psychedelics. Psychedelics, you know, you don't take every day uh, for an effect, as I understand it. Um, antidepressants people take every day and can't stop taking abruptly. You know, if you're do, um, self-administering psilocybin every month and you stop taking it, just for six months, you're not going to go through withdrawals, as I understand it, um, unlike serotonin medications. Um, but Nigam, I want to toss the ball back to your court. Let's see if there's anything you want to comment on here. You know, the ethical issues regarding this information, um, how, how might this affect future research? Um, you know, uh, or, you know, what, what was there anything else that surprised you about um,
1: this article? as is, is tempted as I am to like say a lot of specifics, uh, I'm going to keep it kind of broad and I know we're running low on HLI time too. So um, I want to read a quote uh, from the discussion section and then I want to say some high level things. So I'm going to read this quote. The general public widely believes that depression has been convincingly demonstrated to be the result of serotonin or other chemical abnormalities, and this belief shapes how people understand their moods, leading to a pessimistic outlook on the outcome of depression and negative expectancies about the possibility of self-regulation of mood. Okay, I'm going to read a little more. The idea that depression is a result of a chemical imbalance also influences decisions about whether to take or continue antidepressant medication and may discourage people from discontinuing treatment, possibly leading to lifelong dependence on these drugs. That sounds like a serious ethical issue right there. Yeah, and and uh, you know, readers, uh, keep your eyes out for some potential cool uh, ethics-related publications coming soon uh, that, we'll, uh, that we'll 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 let you know more about. But um, the reason I wanted to read that is because I think it's really potent, and I also think you know, okay, to 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 clarify upfront, I understand there's a huge difference between what we were talking about with reciprocity and and disenfranchised indigenous populations and uh, you know, people who do have a lot of privilege and are, you know, have healthcare and, and, you know, jobs in the modern society and all this, but yet still um, there's so many inequities in, in the life and in the society. And so it, it is the reason I wanted to read this quote is because There's just so many people who are just normal, ordinary people who trust in the healthcare system, who trust in their doctor, who trust in their pharmacist, and like young doctors and pharmacists, and and even you know PhDs, master students who go to school and they just trust the curriculum. And there's all these things. So I wanted to read this quote because it just really like, to me, like drives home the impact of this. I mean, how many people had their lives affected by taking serotonergic antidepressants that have these long on times and these long off times and these other, uh, side effects. And then, and then, so here's my high level thing. So that's my quote. Here's my high level thing. And I'll get off my five HT one a box or whatever, <laughs> um, that there was a hype in the media a month ago, three weeks ago that ser- serotonergic antidepressants aren't the answer. It's been debunked and it was in the news and people said, "Oh, oh, wow, look at that. But that was based off this article, right? And then some news reporters, some science news reporters saw that health news reporters saw that they wrote stories. It's a hot topic. Okay. But these papers have been coming out for 20 years. Like if you go and look at the table where they list all of the papers, all the meta analyses in this umbrella review, and you go and you look line by line and they're like, does not support the theory that serotonin causes depression. Line two does not support the theory. Line three does not. Line 16, 17 does not support the theory. So what I'm saying is
0: everyone in this research field is getting an F.
3: Basically, you're saying we need better AI to tell us when all of our stuff looks like trash.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I'm going to create an AI program called trash and you'll put whatever you're working on in it and it'll tell you whether or not
1: it is trash. But Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So what I'm saying though, you, you guys are not wrong. I'm, I'm not, not saying that, but to be specific, what I'm saying is in hindsight, here's a 20 year body of evidence that says this is not the way. And then how many doctors, pharmacists, patients, healthcare systems, payers, Medicare, Medicaid, the Fed, the state just didn't care, didn't notice, didn't, uh, just kept pushing it. So anyways, last comment for me, as we go into this new era of psychedelic medicines for depression or more holistic or more, a better appreciation for more holistic treatments for things like depression versus just take your Lexapro or whatever, um, um, I hope that we can learn a lesson from this and we can, when I say we, I'm saying collectively the industry, the society can learn a lesson from this based on our thing in the beginning with the game. I feel nervous that some people may not that the industry industries as a juggernaut may not, and they may seek to solve, sell, sell more again, but Here's a big red flag, and we're talking about it and we're trying to help, you know, people notice it and care. So yeah.
0: yeah, absolutely. And I think it's so important to discuss these issues, especially when there is scientific information that may change how we think about things. Cause when we look at that, like most people think that medications from the that are FDA approved are free from life-altering adverse reactions. And that's simply not true. You know, the FDA makes an informed decision they help us understand what those life-changing effects can be and um, you know serious problems can be missed for years especially if they're subtle or could be attributed to the condition you know the, the drug treats so there are, there are a lot of issues here in in this research and I think that we have to not necessarily point fingers at the FDA because, sometimes researchers just make up data and so we there's no like evidence of fraud here like there is with the amyloid beta theory which I know we're we're going towards the end of the show introducing new topics is taboo but you know um, I don't know if any of you have had time to read this, other storm happening right about this time is that the researchers who are famous got like billions of dollars in funding over the years to study amyloid beta and Alzheimer's just kept using like photoshopping the same figures in papers. And like it turns out that all this is sure there's am like what do we know after all their billions of dollars that amyloid beta does indeed exist in the brain and. You know, but I think this is similar to how we approach other neurocognitive issues. It's like we look for these single markers to tell us everything. Is it over? Is it under? Is that good? Is that bad? Is is and I don't even think we have the resources, resources or ability to say what is normal. And and that's something like for years, people I've been talking with people about developing an endocannabinoid diagnostic test for like your endocannabinoids, like your endogenous cannabinoids. And everyone were like, what's a normal profile look like? I'm like, nobody knows we need to do that. And they're like, ah, I don't want to do that. Like just tell us what to look for. So we, you know, and and I think that 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 we have to maybe go back to the basics a little bit with things like serotonin and, you know, and definitely, definitely I think a lot of people's brains um, have imbalances, but maybe not from serotonin. But I think there seems to be something going around uh, these days affecting people's brains a lot. I think it's the television. I think television is probably the drug that everyone's addicted to. Who knows? But podcasts, podcasts cure television use disorder. I don't know if you knew that. This uh, <laughs> that is not
3: this, this a medical podcast, <laughs> This is
0: not going to constitute medical oh, advice man. or opinion, and you should consult with your general practitioner. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Maybe we should change the name of the podcast to uh, "How to How to How to Find an Antidote" or "How to Read How to Read an Umbrella Review." I don't know. I'm being harsh, but, but no, I think it's
0: important know. to to take these reviews in context. And it must, and as you said, it's shocking because they go line by line, um, sort of describing oh. like "nope, nope," and it, and it had to come to that for people to um, really. I think hopefully this will get more traction and more people will talk about it. And so um, just know that the chemical imbalance theory is imbalanced and does not have great data to support it um, upon review.
3: I think it's important to remember that for all, I mean, especially just scientists in general. I mean, it's, I sort of mentioned this a lot in the past, but into others, it's one, we don't really have anything we sign ethically to get a PhD in any kind of natural science. So from like an Mm -hmm. ethics perspective, I think that we're really lacking on what our certifications are as just being a PhD in insert random natural science degree here. So I think that from an ethics perspective, that's one way that we could really work on some of these things. But also it's... (laughs) It's also a matter of people stepping back and really looking at their field regularly and recognizing that mm-hmm. the point of science is to move forward, not to have so much ego and get so attached to your research that you refuse to ever pretend that there might be something wrong. We have to play with those things in science all the time. Otherwise, it just becomes business. And the point is for it to be science. So... That's my, my spiel at the end
0: there. I like that. And and just because it's not working for the thing that you thought it might work for doesn't mean it has other applications. I mean, I'm sure many of us today would think about leeches or bloodletting as being like, oh, that's just something. Didn't alchemists used to do that back in the day to convert sick people to healthy people? But it turns out that it does have applications for certain illnesses. So many of these treatments might be being misused or outside their target population. And- you know, while we are saying and we all seem to agree that the serotonin theory of depression, this chemical imbalance theory as sometimes it's referred to, is not really substantiated by the current data. And though this huge research effort based on the serotonin hypothesis, even though it hasn't produced convincing evidence of the biochemical basis of depression, it has shown that these drugs can be effective for treating depression. So, you know, maybe it's uh, the old saying is, don't look where the light is shining. You might have to look outside that little area. You know, if you if you lose something, you don't just look under where the lit area is. You might look back where you lost it. <laughs> um, to horribly paraphrase a parable, I guess. All right. Um, I think that's going to wrap our show. or we're well over an hour, so thank you so much for sticking with us to the end. Thank you, uh, Dr. Vonsom for joining us again. Thank you, Dr. Aurora. Thank you to our trusty audio engineer, Joe Leonardo, for coming in to the game. Super strong today at last minute. We appreciate that. Um, as well as to our artists and our sponsors, thank you so much for helping to make this podcast possible.